0: Nature's Edge is brought to you by the Angler Magazine of Western North Carolina, Western North Carolina's only magazine dedicated to the fishing enthusiast. Pick one up at over 400 locations throughout Western North Carolina, or visit them online at theanglermagazine.com to find out more. And be sure to follow them on Facebook, Angler Magazine of Greetings, friends. This is Dale Stewart, and this is Nature's Edge. My guest today is a interesting lady who I have had the privilege of knowing for some time, Dr. Melissa Booth, uh, also known as the Science Communicator, and we're going to talk about that. She is equal parts bookworm, outdoor nature lover, and science cheerleader. Is that right, Melissa, science cheerleader? And uh, she really has a passion for translating and communicating science uh, to the world, and I really... That, that's one of the things I really want to get into and discuss with you today is, is the best way to communicate science and what a lot of people find over their heads, uh, uh, and, and we're going we're gonna to do that. And uh, Melissa has uh, all the expected letters uh, behind her name, Ph.D. in Microbiology and Molecular Genetics, M.S. in Cellular, Molecular, and Microbiology, and B.S. in Biomedicine uh, from Oklahoma State University. Um, born in Texarkana Is I was that,
1: born in Texarkana Texas there we
0: go so let's just jump in here Melissa and and I I'm gonna start can I call you Melissa you I'm sure gonna, can and, yeah and uh, uh, I think I've known you long enough to do that <laughs> and let let's let's start out at the beginning I mean what what in your growing up years got you interested in in who you are today.
1: Oh, thanks for asking, Dale. It's good to be with you again. And I sometimes prefer to be drinking beer at New Belgium, but hey, here we are. And we've done that a few times. (laughs) Um, I grew up in the panhandle of Oklahoma. Some people may not know that that used to be called no man's land. And there's a reason for that, because the ecology of that area is biblical in its Um, proportions. There's plagues of grasshoppers that we had when I was growing up, dust storms, and lots of drought. It is the epicenter of the Dust Bowl, which you may remember in The Grapes of Wrath. And seeing some of the fallout from the Dust Bowl as I grew up, the dust storms, like I said, or the building of a reservoir called Lake Optima. And they spent decades building it, and then when they went to fill it, the ground was so thirsty, it just drained away and I learned in classes in school that the Ogallala aquifer underneath it had been tapped out and that's why the lake hadn't filled and that was sort of my first link between science and real lived experience
0: and and I guess and and that's sort of what drove you to to where you are today was was that sort of awakening I guess that yes you, that you had in Oklahoma yes at, at that time um Let's move forward a little bit and and uh, talk about your your career and and I want to get into this communicating science stuff pretty quick because I want to I have as you know a lot of interest in that and and how one does um, communicate uh, uh, with individuals who may not have the academic background that you have and I will say that I, I think you do a tremendous job uh, doing that. And, oh, thanks, and and not talking at at a, at a level that. Uh, Uh, many of us can't can't understand uh you do speak plain english Uh, (laughs) that's my goal thank you uh, yeah um so let's talk about that a little bit um well let me back up a little bit after after you left oklahoma after you got all these letters after your name and everything else um you stayed in in the science community, correct? And, I did. Sort of did. followed that traditional. I did. You were a scientist.
1: I was a scientist in academia for years and years. For I have 23 years of laboratory and field research experience and 28 years in the college classroom teaching. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah. So that that, that traditional.
0: Kind of, yeah, traditional type teaching, and I and I would assume that developing that communication, science communication skill, came about from academic
1: well yeah partly i think it really started also as a kid in oklahoma so i'm outside playing a lot really getting into nature learning to ride a horse that sort of thing excelling in school but i also started showing um A propensity for biology and mathematics. And so, because I was a girl, they started sending me in that direction. But where I was spending the rest of my time was taking piano, participating in choir, writing essays. I won an essay contest that got me a trip to Washington, D.C. when I was a kid. Um, So I was really in the creative arts as well, and in college they filtered me towards the sciences because I was female, and they needed more women represented in the sciences. And so, yes, I would say my career in the sciences has made me want to communicate science itself to public audiences, but I think it's also my creativity background in music and performing arts and writing that makes me recognize the links between arts and science in helping to communicate messages to the public.
0: Why do you think that young women today or young ladies, uh, even going back, you said you were sort of funneled funneled in that direction because they want that many women in in the sciences or in the uh, uh, mathematics or engineering fields. Uh, are you seeing a change in that at all?
1: I am seeing a change in that in the biological sciences. I don't know that the trends in physics and mathematics have shifted a great deal, but in the biological sciences, for sure, there is almost equal representation. The problem now arises with women reaching the highest levels. There seems to truly be a glass ceiling. You see professors in academic settings reaching assistant professor, maybe associate professor, but not going for full professor or not getting full professor and that full um, exclamation point on the end of their career or in research settings in corporations etc you see women reaching a certain level but then not going on to the full flourishment of a career
0: and the reason for that
1: hmm I wonder what that is <laughs> um, I, I had to ask yeah I
0: think we all know I think we
1: all know yeah, yes.
0: yeah talk to me a little bit about what is science literacy
1: Oh, that's a really, really good question. And literacy itself is something that we're still striving for 100% around the planet, but we're almost there. There is public education available to most of the planet. And so when we move past just general literacy, we start looking for ex-literacies, financial literacy, science literacy, and segmenting society. What I feel science literacy is is an ability of someone to understand the process of science and critical thinking. It's not necessarily science knowledge, the details of a cell, or how a forest ecosystem works. It's more about the process of science and what science actually is. It's a way of knowing.
0: Yes, it it truly is a way of knowing. And and that's something that I've spent a lot of time talking about, too, as you know, when I... When I give my talks and, and so forth, is using that that same language is, that it, it is a way to know and and a way to question. Uh, oh yes, uh, what's what's going on out there, and then how does that move from from a literacy standpoint and into sort of what you're working on with with communication of science?
1: Right. So, Dale, that's a good question. Several people that are trying to communicate science, whether it be media personalities like yourself or scientists themselves who are trying to fulfill their outreach requirements um, for their grants, for example— do not have enough time to take in all of the complex information that is needed to actually adequately communicate science in a way that affects change in the person that's receiving that science. And so the Science Communicator, this new effort that I'm launching, is to create space for people who are trying to communicate science to find their message, to create narratives that will effectively engage their audiences, but also create the effective change in their audience that they seek, whether that be a behavior change or simply knowledge or simply gee whiz, whatever their goal is to help them sort of create the story that will release release that goal into the world.
0: And, you know, I'm a big believer in storytelling and using uh, stories, um, in my conservation work and in my efforts in, in that, and, and as you know, I do a lot of work with wetlands, conservation, and so forth. Um, so I, I could see where what you're talking about could be extremely important to NGOs that are, that are working uh, uh, in, in various uh, conservation efforts.
1: Absolutely, They have to tell stories to engage their audiences and to get people on board and in many instances for NGOs to donate money to particular efforts they're making, say putting a well in somewhere in Africa to provide clean water for people or to irrigate crops to provide food. So the story has to be effective at motivating an audience to pull their checkbook out. And so how do we do that? How do we create those stories? Scientists usually shy away from that. They do. That's, you know, it's a, there's already a narrative that's built into science. The way we communicate with each other is through these things called publications, which are in something called peer-reviewed journals, meaning magazines that are for each other reviewed by each other, okay? And we have an introduction and we have a methods and materials, we have a results, and we have a discussion. And we stay clearly objective and passive-voiced when we communicate our ideas and our results from our experiments to one another. Narrative, the way you and I are talking about it, stories are sort of more imaginative and intuitive, experiential. And science kind of shies away from that. It does. And I think that we need to embrace narrative and try to fuse the scientific endeavor with story
0: yeah you know when I uh when I give talks uh about wetlands for instance and and the the importance of wetlands to to an ecosystem and you know and break that down uh, into language that the audience understands whether I'm speaking to You know fifth and sixth graders or I'm speaking to adults about that Um, there's been times when I was on on stage with scientists who who were very notable in their field but I noticed very quickly when they started talking in, in that academic speak if you will we lose the audience.
1: That's right. That's right. And I'm afraid I'm doing that right here.
0: <laughs> no, no, you're not. Because I would, I would jump in there and say, no, 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 that's not it. But um, Melissa, you're actually, you've actually set up. Is it a business? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, around science communication. Yes,
1: it's called the Science Communicator.
0: And. Define that for me.
1: So, we're going to offer lectures and workshops for people who need to communicate science. We want to empower communicators to build stories, to have time to craft those stories, but also provide them with all of the latest data on psychological barriers that exist in our culture, sociological barriers. You've heard of things like cognitive bias. Yes, there's a, there's a phenomenon called the backfire effect. For instance, that when you provide the information that discredits misinformation, for instance, let's say the story about vaccines and autism. Okay, we now know that that research that was presented was actually false and motivated for really um, nefarious purposes, and so there is no link between autism and vaccines that has been established. However, that idea continues to propagate. It does. So, people, public health officials, scientists, etc., have provided the right information to audiences that need to vaccinate their children, and there's been a backfire effect. They can now articulate why that previous story is wrong, but it somehow entrenched them in their initial reaction, which is to still not get a vaccine.
0: Yes. Well, you know, people believe what they believe right? and and they seek out uh, other information that supports what they believe. And and it's very difficult sometimes to to get beyond that. I I know that, for instance, now there's some outbreaks of smallpox uh, among some of the uh, some some young people. And uh, I would say part of that is is directly related to to not vaccinating.
1: That's right. Yeah. And even if they've received the story about what this misinformation was about, they may understand that and be able to parrot that back to you, but they stay with their original reaction, which was to the initial story. So that first story that there was a link had more cachet than the following story.
0: Oh, absolutely, I, and and I understand that. And, and uh, uh, as you know, I've done some work with the CDC, and, and yes, I, and I think early on in and. In, uh, they could certainly use science communication because early on i think they did a very poor job and and other uh, medical institutions did as well about relaying uh, fact from fiction and having people believe it
1: absolutely by by yeah. putting
0: it into a story that that became believable yeah and that's i guess at the at the base what your science communication is all about
1: well right it, What is a story and what is a narrative? To me, it's something that kind of takes complex and ambiguous parts, whether it be external parts or human feelings, and kind of put them in an order that makes the whole story meaningful, that makes the whole collection of ambiguous things meaningful, the feelings and the events and the people. That's what a story is and science doesn't stand outside of that science is a human endeavor it is it is a human way of knowing so there is essentially a story embedded in science itself and i think that scientists can embrace this while still maintaining scientific integrity
0: and uh, and another example and and this is this is something we can we can talk about bravely is, is the the whole notion of, of climate change or all of those things. I mean, th- that is a very divisive, I guess divisive is, is a correct word, uh, within um, the general public out there as, as uh, to, to what they believe. And it's, it's based on uh, not always facts and not always science. It's, it's based on, uh, again, their belief system, who they listen to, who they read, and and what their uh, what their fundamental um, uh, belief system is, and that within itself causes problems. I think for people that are trying to work in that in that field.
1: Yes, absolutely. You're very astute in your observations. You may be aware of the Yale Climate Communication um, Institute. Yes, I am, and they've come out with a concept called the Six Americas of Climate Change. Yes. And the data that goes along with those sort of descriptives and demographics of how people take in climate change data into their lived experience is obviously political in nature. And that's what we're talking about here. We want people to be able to engage in science and be unafraid and to remove the motivations associated with their biases so that they can make good, informed decisions for themselves, for their families, for their communities, and for their nation. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And the climate change data from the Yale Center shows that people are very politically motivated um, when it comes to taking in new information about the science of climate. And people who sort of are on the blue end of the spectrum take in the knowledge and really incorporate that first people who sort of are on the redder end of the spectrum really put family and community first before they put new knowledge first and so this is just a basic difference in how these people approach life
0: yes it it is and I think also that it is moved like a number of things uh, in the conservation world it's it's moved from the science to becoming more politicized yes it's 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 moved from that scientific discussion and now it's it's politics
1: that's right and politics uses story very well yes they do I mean think about every campaign that's been in your lifetime I'm sure you've seen even more exciting ones than I've seen
0: are you calling me old
1: I'm (laughs) saying that you have more experience than I do um (laughs) but not much actually (laughs) (laughs) um so if if they have figured out that you can use story to manipulate people. I think that's why scientists and other fields shy away from it, because they don't want to feel like they're manipulating. But story is creating meaning. It is. And it doesn't mean cherry-picking. It means creating meaning so that people can incorporate it into their lived experience.
0: Yeah, and politicians are pretty good orators. I mean, yeah. they, they know how to tell a story science is just now catching up to that I that's think.
1: right that's
0: right and I, and I think that's why it's important that uh, the work that you're doing is is with the science communicator is is so important because it it, it is has the ability to train people to uh, to speak with that same storytelling uh, background as Politicians.
1: That's right. And that's on top of all of their training in the laboratory, in the field, and to teach. So this is another hat for these people to wear, regardless of what um, segments of society they're working in. If they need to communicate science, they're already wearing several hats. They are. And so yeah. the science communicator is trying to create space to train them quickly and effectively to have the story the skills and the confidence to communicate science to their desired audiences
0: and how do people how do people learn more about your new business the science communicator
1: well we have a website that's gone up it's still in development but you can go on there and see the early stages of it www.thesciencecommunicator.com and just start there sign up for our newsletter we have keynote lectures coming up and we will start giving workshops starting in march of 2019
0: and will those primarily be in the Asheville, Western Carolina area or are For you, now
1: for now they are.
0: Are you going worldwide?
1: I will I be know. going worldwide, but we will be offering them here in Asheville and North Carolina initially.
0: So you're gonna be wanting to borrow my touring bus.
1: I am. I, can, I to, am. I can't wait. I hope you do come <laughs> along. To
0: get out there. Uh, would love to do that. Um what else? Uh Melissa, uh is going on in your world, and and uh,
1: oh yeah. Uh, so the other thing that I'm doing is learning to translate science through fiction, and so that's my real goal in life is to publish a novel and so I've taken several writing courses I've been to all kinds of workshops and conferences and coffee groups and you name it and I work diligently every day on a novel right now I'm taking a master class with Margaret Atwood the dystopian goddess of all yes.
0: yeah I, it, as as someone who writes and uh, has published in the past I will tell you write. <laughs>
1: Just, that's all you have to do.
0: Just start writing. And and the great thing of, uh, about fiction and science fiction, you can make it up.
1: I know. <laughs> I know. And so that's where I have been a little tangled up because as a scientist, I do not want to make up the the work that I'm doing, I er, in my early stages I describe myself as being somewhere between Michael Crichton and Barbara Kingsolver, and Michael Crichton takes science and then blows it out right and yes. then tells this like adventure, this boyhood adventure story basically is what they all are, and then Margaret Atwood on the other hand sort of has a human story that's decorated with very lovely prose about nature. So those are very, very, very different ways of approaching the use of science in fiction. I realize that where I am is something called transrealism. I want to put real science, fact-full, real science into fictional stories. The story being something to engage an audience and make them vulnerable. The science being something that sparks their curiosity and makes them start asking questions yeah
0: and and you know there is a mechanism out there that has done that pretty well and that's the historical novel where they have taken pieces of of history and and molded a fictional tale into a real event
1: absolutely and i love historical fiction
0: well that that's a good place to start and as i said you, you just write and and get out there but i can understand that the uh the pull that must be going on in your, in your head uh, from, ba- from writing academic uh, uh, papers and so forth and, and writing in academic uh, books as well to, uh, to moving to this next stage. But uh, don't overthink it.
1: Thank you. I think that's advice I need to have you call and do every day.
0: <laughs> and, and, you know, I would be happy to do that. Uh, Melissa, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, Usually when I'm having discussions with Melissa, as she brought up earlier, it's over a cold beer, and and we will have to do that again. I want to thank my listeners for joining me on Nature's Edge. And remember, when you look deep into nature, then you will understand everything else. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Dale. Visit naturesedgemedia.com. You can check out podcasts, videos, lecture archives from Dale, and much more. Thank you for listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart, brought to you by Angler Magazine of Western North Carolina.